Hello everyone, it's Logan from the future again, and plot twist, this has nothing to do with my neighbor. I'm making this disclaimer at the beginning because I made a mistake while we were talking about the many saints of Newark in our opening, pertaining specifically with the creator of The Sopranos. Initially in our recording, I said that David Simon created The Sopranos. It was in fact David Chase. David Simon is actually the creator of The Wire. I will admit my classic HBO knowledge is definitely lacking. I know it's not a giant mistake or anything, but hey, I thought it'd be nice to fix my mistakes when I get a chance to actually catch them. With that said and done, enjoy the episode. Busiest month of the year, it seems. Spooktober. Spooktober. And it's loaded. And it's not even spooky movies. It's very rare. I mean, it's not really rare, but it's like it's very much non-spooky movies over spooky movies in terms of new releases this, yeah, this October. I feel like October is kind of becoming a new kind of blockbuster season. Yeah. Not necessarily, you know, your superhero movies and stuff, but like big movies high profile movies obviously it's we're you know moving into awards season a little bit but it's like mm-hmm. a lot of these are pretty big movies yeah it's it's um, award season and blockbuster season have just like slowly throughout the years pre-covid yeah kind of just bleed into other like seasons yeah where it's like it used to be like may was like the the start start or maybe the first the last weekend of april and now it's like fucking february could have something that's yeah. like blockbustery like once or twice and then like go to march and there's a little bit more and then it <laughs> yeah. just becomes well and i think probably part of that is and i mean it's it's also just reading you know the market and everything but i feel like marvel has kind of opened up the gates for any season to be anybody's game just yeah because once... they're, now that they're doing you know four movies a year it's like we're mm-hmm. gonna have one in every quarter yeah and Once so they started like, well, doing three a year, which was 2017. Yeah, 2017. Because that was uh, Homecoming, Ragnarok. And Guardians and 2. And Guardians 2. Yeah, because it was Guardians 2, early summer. Homecoming in July. July. And then th- November was Ragnarok. Yeah. And then since then, yeah. It's also, DC also had the bold move of putting Batman v Superman in March. Yeah, they were The year in that March. came out. Right, because I think, yeah, because it was trying to beat Civil War to the Yeah, punch. it was trying to, yeah, get yeah. the one up there, and, and uh, that worked out. And now, yeah, now we just know <laughs> Batman v Superman as the greatest superhero film of all time. Nothing has really challenged it since. No, no but like this week we've got, because uh, like this is technically the quote-unquote weakest week, but still there's... Yeah, the this many, weekend, yeah. There's the Many Saints of Newark, which is the... The Sopranos re- prequel. Yes, the return to form of the Sopranos that no one knew they wanted, unless you're I don't you're know that Sopranos. anybody realized they wanted it. No, I, I think the rumor was, is that David Simon, who's the creator of the Sopranos, had like a, um, uh, I don't know, it was, it was a riot film. It was like a 70s film, it was supposed to be taking place in the 70s oh, yeah. and had to do like... Uh, I can't remember which specific riots he wanted to cover, but he had a hard time funding that film. And the rumor is that he decided, well, what if I tied it to The Sopranos in some way? Yeah. And then that's where this kind of comes into form. But it's also the fact that it's like, 
James Gandolfini's iconic role as Tony Soprano is being played by his son yeah. in a younger role, and he seems super cool, and the cast is great. Yeah. Like, it's got a great cast in it. I mean, it seems like people who love The Sopranos are losing their minds yeah. just get, having anything else that's Sopranos-esque. It's kind of a, uh, like, an El Camino situation for me where I'm so far removed from the, the oh, source yeah. material and mm-hmm. the fan base that I'm like... It doesn't even register on my radar as a movie that's coming out because it's like, well, this is part of the show. So if yeah. I haven't seen the show, I don't care and I'm not going to watch the movie. I mean, so. honestly, yeah, it makes sense. Cause there's no... It might be a good movie and good yeah. for them. But... I mean, because like, there, there is stuff going into the film these last couple of weeks where it's like they've been talking about it as almost as it's like a Marvel film about like, oh, Eddie Falco almost had a role, like reprising a role as Tony's wife. Yeah. And it's like, why... Uh, flashing forward? <laughs> Why yeah. is that? It's, it's like, oh, maybe it's just a rumor, but it's like, it's just been a lot of buzz surrounding that. Bring back the CGI mom with the face replacement. Do you, do you know the story I don't know that? the story, no. I think it's, uh, I'm pretty sure. That, Wait, I do know yeah, this story. It I is think it's Tony's mom or something. Yeah, she, I think... The actress died, and so yes. they like had to puppeteer, digitally puppeteer her face onto somebody else's body. Yes, I do remember that. I think horrendous. I've seen the scene. Yeah, where it's like, oh, the lighting is oh, just way off. Yeah. yeah, because it's a it's HBO in the early <laughs> to mid two thousands. Actually, no, it's probably late two thousands by that point. Biting off a little more than they could chew, probably. Yeah, but well, trying to work with what they could. It's that uh, the Adams family too. You know, everyone yeah. really wanted that first animated Adams family, <laughs> so they just did. Hotel made Transylvania already come out. It got pushed. Oh, okay. Is it, it got not pushed. October? Uh, it got pushed, and I think it was bought by Prime. Oh. So if it is in October, we don't know what the new could be date like a is straight for. to streaming dump or something. It, I don't know. Well, it's like I think Prime bought it, or a, a streaming service bought the film yeah. for like a good amount of money because they were like, uh, I mean, because Hotel Transylvania is probably one of the biggest, hilariously one of the biggest franchises Sony yeah, has right yeah, now. Yeah. But they don't have Sandler in the film, and it's the fourth film. And I don't. During it's COVID. even Gendy Tartakovsky anymore, is it? I don't know. Because he did the first couple or maybe he did the first three. three. Okay. I did the first three. Yeah. Um, but yeah, this weekend, yeah, the big one's probably Venom. Venom, oh, Let There Be Carnage. I legitimately forgot. Like I, I said, <laughs> oh, we should talk about the films this weekend, and I just completely blanked on yeah. the other big one, which is, yes, Let There Be Carnage. Venom, colon, Woody Harrelson does a bit of trolling. It's it's just funny to me how how that film just survived. Do you know what I mean? Where it's like it's not a. I do not I, think it is one of the worst superhero films out there. It oh is no. bad. It's but it's not yeah. to the point where it's not BVS bad. But it's, it's had, not. No, it's not some like atrocious, intellectually yeah. offensive dumpster fire. It's more just like a mess. Yeah, if you told it's, me this was in development because. They heard, you know, such and such studio was making a Catwoman film, and they felt like, what if we did a a villain film of Venom? (laughs) Like, this feels like a film that's been in development for decades. Yeah, it's very. When in reality, it was made (laughs) four to five years ago. Strong, strong vibes of like early 2000s superhero films when they were like dabbling with the edgy stuff and. You know, mm-hmm. the writing's not really great, but there I think there was a charm to it that seemingly I guess won people over and that's probably a lot to do with Tom Hardy just being a 
sweaty, greasy dude who has no idea what he's doing in Man, that movie. Talk about a great actor that just goes all over yeah. the place and seems to be impervious right now in terms <laughs> of like, yeah, sure, I'll do it again. Yeah, he's he's a lot of people's main pick for Bond. He's yeah, it's just kind of no. one of those everybody. I'm not saying I agree. No, but no, it's I mean just Hardy's those, a great actor. I'm, I, I guess uh, I don't see him as a Bond type. Maybe, he kind of goes for the the more yeah. grisly characters yeah. and the. And maybe this is a millennial opinion, but maybe we should do Bond different than every other time we've done it in the last sixty years. Look, don't but, don't tell me you're saying we should do a, a woman Bond. Or a person of color uh, bond. It, it'll Don't take an, it'll, say that, It's going to take another 20 years before a female bond. <laughs> I feel like that's the reason. I mean, to reason. be honest, I'm kind, of, I'm kind of on Daniel Craig's page with the female bond. Mm-hmm. I think a female 007 would be perfectly fine. Or a equally well, you know, written and well-rounded yeah. and interesting, complicated, badass character who yeah. is a woman. James Bond specifically... I don't necessarily see the need to gender bend the role just because of the nature of the character as kind of a chauvinist. No, I mean, it's one of those things, too, of just I like... I am interested to see Lashana Lynch I mean, as the new 007 in No Time to Die. That's really exciting That's the thing, me. though, is both Mendez and Fukunga from Fukunaga, Fukunga, Fukunaga, <laughs> Carrie Fukunaga with uh, No Time to Die, both Sam Mendez and Carrie Fukunaga seem to have kind of been like, here is the closest to female bond we're going to get to without controversy because we like the idea, but we're not even going to touch yeah. the toxic mind field because Sam Mendes like reinvigorated the idea of money. Penny being a badass with right. Naomi Harris. Right, 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 Cause right. she is great in the time she has in Skyfall. Yeah. And then Yan Fukunaga does uh Lashana Lynch. Yeah. Who's one of the best parts in Captain Marvel. And she looks awesome in no time to die. Mm-hmm. So if that's what they're going to do from this point forward, sure it's just i don't i don't know i just seen seen another like high profile british actor that isn't like yeah. an interesting different choice yeah i, I mean, feel we'll like see. really the best thing they can do is let bond rest for a while yes like i don't really need to know who the next bond is going to be or if there's going to be another bond in the next two to three years yeah like they can sit on that for a while let the culture change let you know the public consciousness mm-hmm. and the public interest in bond fade or change or you know just read the room and see what people yeah. want and then see if bond has a place in that culture at least wait as long as they did for the the break between die another day and casino royale which was what four five years five years i think i was gonna say five because i think yeah. it was oh three to oh eight Oh, um, was it 03? I thought it was 03. Casino Royale is 06. Um, oh, then it might just be three? Die another day. It's 2002, so four years. Four years. So, like, at least four years, and then. Yeah. Then maybe. And I would be fine with not even hearing an announcement until. Oh, like, yeah, four I don't. Years. I just want No Time to Die to be better than Spectre, and then you can do whatever the hell yeah. you want for, like, four years. Yeah, I am getting pretty hyped for No Time to Die. Oh, I don't yeah. know if I should or if that's. Apparently, or whatever, but I've been hearing yeah. mostly good things. Yeah, the reviews are out, or like yeah. early reviews. So I'm I'm excited for that. Uh, then let's see, we've got next week. Yeah, it's no time to die. And what was the other one you said that comes out next week? Uh, next week is no time to die and Lamb. Lamb, the, the psychological whatever that movie's gonna be. Yeah, about 
it's uh, already Numi Rapace and her husband raising a sheep child. Mm-hmm. Which I, uh, gosh, I am excited yeah. to see what people say about that. Yeah. Because with that and Titane, which comes out this weekend, which if you don't know what Titane is, don't worry. Most people probably don't. Yeah, it's kind of getting um, sneakily put out this weekend. Yeah, it is the the it's a female director, correct? It's a, it's the yeah. it's the female director's follow up that is no way tied to her last film, but is following Raw, yeah. the film, the coming of age French story about a a college girl who finds out she likes eating flesh. You know the classic coming of age tale that France <laughs> yeah. really the expected. Cannibal coming of age, and it's a. I mean that that's a great movie, but also really, really screwed, like yeah. really fucked. And well, and that was I think that's a a quote that they kind of pull on the the Titan trailer is the most fucked up movie ever made or the sweetest movie. <laughs> and I'm like, oh no, <laughs> nothing, nothing really made me think about like what world are we living in when i got a notification from the amc app on my phone about titan coming this weekend the fact i don't know if i'm more worried that amc is like pushing that or the fact that they know that that's the thing this weekend i want to see yeah (laughs) Um, (laughs) oh yeah that director's name is julia tucorneau i don't know i'm probably butchering it you're doing your best it's a french name i don't even i can't even see what you're saying but i know you're doing your best julia du do Cornell. Yeah. I don't know. But then it's then the fifteenth we have, you know, Halloween Kills and French Dispatch. Yep. And then the twenty second we have I would say probably the biggest one uh, or at least the yeah. most curious one, which is Denis Villeneuve's Dune. Yeah. Certainly um, the most the highest budget of any of these. Yes. And then the last weekend of October we have Edgar Wright's first horror film last night in Soho. Well, and also the Dune Weekend is also French Dispatch. Yes, Wes Anderson's newest film. Mm-hmm. Just a lot of films deciding to come out during spooky season. Yeah. And also, uh, in case anyone cares, if you have Shudder, I guess VHS decided to have a new film that came out. Yeah. That, and it looks like a VHS <laughs> film. It, I mean, it look, already looks better than the third one. So good hey, on not, them. We're not gonna throw shade on the VHS trilogy yet. No, we not were, yet. We were considering doing yeah. a VHS trilogy this mm-hmm. October. We had to make a sacrifice, and that was the one that I was fine with pushing. Yeah, right. We were both fine with pushing to the side. But there will be more Spooktober's. But speaking of Spooktober, hello everyone. <laughs> I'm Logan Sowash, and I'm Andy Carr, and this is Odd Trilogies with Logan and Andy. And on Odd Trilogies with Logan and Andy, we take a trio of films which are either tied by number, by thematic elements, or even cast and crew. We go through each film one by one, and we talk about the good, the bad, and the weird surrounding them. And today, this is going to be a fun one. (laughs) We are starting off October with one of the most high-profile horror films of all time, as well as probably one of the most underrated, for a lot of reasons, trilogies in horror, which is the Exorcist trilogy. We're doing... The, f- the first three. We're doing Exorcist 1. The Exorcist. The Exorcist. <laughs> the Exorcist 2, The Heretic, and The Exorcist 3, which I think in some regions is also called Legion. Yeah, well, it's it's based on a the novel. book called yeah. Legion. Yeah. Which we'll get to. But, yeah, we thought when it came to spooky time in October, we wanted to jump on some iconic horror films and even do some niche stuff and... What better way to start off the, the month with one of the greatest horror films of all time 
as well as its sequels that are ranging in quality, to say the least. <laughs> and we'll get to them in a moment, but to start off, you know, it's The Exorcist. There's a lot we could say, and we're going to talk about it yeah. for a good amount. I don't know if we're going to talk about it as much as, like, The Heretic, because we have a lot to say about <laughs> how fucked up that movie is. But the original Exorcist is fascinating because... At the time, it was considered Warner Brothers' highest profile budget. Guess, yeah. Which was, like, at the time, $12 million in 1973. Yeah. And it was one of those things where it's like the author, William Peter Blatty, writes The Exorcist in the late 60s based off of the exorcism of Roland Doe in 1949. Yeah. And basically doesn't say that it's Roland Doe, basically takes a lot of what apparently happened during that exorcism and rearranged it and changed it into a narrative that takes place in Georgetown mm-hmm. and is a bestseller when it comes out. And when that happens, Warner Brothers decides he, they want to make a film. And William Peter Blatty gets involved. I think he, doesn't he help with the screenplay? With Oh, yeah. 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 And at the time, which is fascinating too, is... um. Stanley Kubrick, Mike Nichols were all, like, approached or were thinking about being approached to be attached to the film. But William Peter Blatty wanted one person specifically, which is director William Friedkin, Mm -hmm. who most people would know, other than The Exorcist, is his film right before The Exorcist, which is 1971's The French Connection, (laughs) which shows that Friedkin made two of the most 70s-ass films (laughs) in the 70s. Like, when I think of 70s films... I think of, like, the start of the blockbusters with Jaws and Star Wars. Right, right. You know, the start of, like, you know, mainstream horror with Halloween and Exorcist. Mm -hmm. And then I think of, like, blatant disregard for human safety, but also some wild (laughs) shooting schedule, like, with French Connection and the action in that. And Freakin' gets on board. The film was initially, I think, supposed to be six to seven million, but the budget doubled. It was over schedule by I think twice as long than they anticipated both uh, the main actresses Ellen Burstyn and Linda Blair both were injured during the process of the film and overall it is a film that like Jaws and like Star Wars felt like it was going to be a nightmare and not work and then it became the highest grossing film in 1973 yeah and there's a reason why it is it holds up way too well yeah. It's insane. There's a lot that, obviously, there's a lot that has already been said time and time again about this movie that we could probably, you know, go on and on about and not cover any new ground. But it is just fascinating how well this movie holds up and how chilling it remains. Mm-hmm. I think a huge part of that is it's just its commitment to kind of focusing on the more like the psychological weight on the characters that are going through it rather than the horror i mean the horror is there and it's spooky but it's mostly spooky because you're worried about you know father karis at the center and or father reagan or reagan yeah yeah the film is fascinating because i mean this is my second time watching it all the way through because yeah i mean yes we're both very young but like this is a film that we've just known culturally just because of how big this film was in the 70s and how big this film was for our grandparents and our parents and everyone surrounding it yeah like, it's kind of one of those films that like everybody yeah. of the previous two or three generations 
references at some at some point in your childhood. Yeah. They're like, oh, you're, yeah, the, it's like the pea soup scene. And, the power of Christ compels you. Your mother sucks cocks in hell. The yeah. head turning scene, pea soup, all those things have been ingrained in terms of horror in our brains because it was as iconic as it is. And what's so funny about the film is the film was two hours, and the first hour is really just character development. Yeah. There's very little scary moments or spooky moments, and while there are some here and there, it's very underplayed, which is probably the best part about the film is that Freakin is not trying to manipulate the audience to be scared. Yeah. He just knows that like if we shoot it the way that it's supposed to be shot, we don't have to put music that makes people jump. They're just going to jump. Yeah, and we don't have to try and scare the audience. The material yeah. itself is terrifying enough. N- no need for spooky violins. As much as I love spooky violins, mm-hmm. I, we just need a we just need a little girl stabbing herself with a cross while no music's happening and <laughs> making it feel like it's real and that we're in the room with everybody. Yeah, and we can't escape. And that's kind of the whole film. And it's also weird too because it's like it does that, but at the same time. There's a lot of passage of time without it really saying on screen. Like, it doesn't say three days later or anything like that. The film just, like, moves really fast and goes by, I think, months and months, and yet it doesn't really tell you and it doesn't really bother you that it keeps moving because they have very interesting ways on how to tell how much is passed. Yeah. It's kind of just a feeling of no matter how long it's actually taking in real time it feels like an eternity for reagan's mother and for you know everybody involved in the problem because they can't figure out what's wrong with her Mm -hmm. and what's so funny too is that if you've never seen this film before you go in with the perception that it is a world where exorcisms are commonplace and that it's they're just going to get an exorcism out of the gate where it's like my my daughter is possessed this movie has no idea what an exorcism is. At least well, most of the characters the, don't. The movie, yeah, assumes that you as the viewer don't know what it is, and also the like many of the main characters don't know. Yeah, they they treat exorcisms like such an outlier, Well, which is wild. Yeah, I mean, it, I feel like this movie probably had a huge hand in making people aware of exorcisms oh, and, and without a doubt. their use in the Catholic Church and that sort of thing. I feel like it was kind of a... Back then, it was what, like, every exorcism movie now pretends that it is today. Yes. Where it's like, yes. the church doesn't talk about it. Deep inside, they know about it, and mm-hmm. they're prepared for it or whatever, but they no. don't. it's not public knowledge. They, now, they tr- everybody knows what an exorcism is, but yeah. every movie that comes out pretends like we don't. It treats exorcism as if there's a specific piece of equipment that broke and only one priest knows how to fix that (laughs) equipment, but they don't know where that priest is. Right, yeah. Like, they treat it as if, like, yeah, exorcisms are like a thing of the past. Like, no one in the church right now really cares or knows how to do that. We Mm -hmm. could do it, but we're going to have to, like, get special help. Yeah. Which is weird to think that the film that basically popularized the idea of a duo doing an exorcism, one's a seasoned veteran, the other one's maybe... A plucky rookie priest, or is like someone who's, or a you know, rookie, or you know, a young priest who's not sure of his faith. Yes, is that's a f- kind of become the trope for every yeah. exorcism movie. After is in the film where both both priests don't talk to one another until the finale. Like yeah, they're not friends. Yeah, they're not Mox- like teacher and student or anything. No, they don't Max know von Sydow doesn't really show up again after 
what like a 90 minutes of not being in the film yeah he just like pops up central figure of the intro and then gets called in at the 11th hour to help out reagan yeah and that it's one of those things where it's like it's not even like the whole film they're talking about father mayor and they're just saying like i don't know maybe there's a priest in the middle east that knows what you need to be done and they don't really and it's not until like well we're doing the exorcism that they know exactly who to call yeah and it's bizarre. It's it's just very weird because you go into this film expecting, perceiving what exactly through culturally what the film is supposed to be doing. And what it does instead is an incredible character study that just makes the horrible moments all the more horrifying and all the more intense yeah. when it gets to it. Well, and it's one of those that really, I think is more successful for kind of how vague it is about yeah. its its ideas on religion and, you know, the, really the, the source of the supernatural terror and, mm-hmm. you know, all of that. It, it's very vague. It's not like it's all answered in the final exorcism no. scene. Uh, it's, it's not like a lot of these movies where it's like, oh, yes, we've figured out it's this demon and this is how we get rid of him. And he wants this and this, he won't stop until he gets this. It's like the entire movie, literally until the end, you have no idea why any of this is happening. No, you just assume in the most basic sense, Reagan finds a Ouija board, plays with it. And you just assume that what she has technically been talking to uh, Captain Howdy is what the the entity calls itself. And they don't really even you know, show her engaging with it. Like no, there, there's one scene where she shows her mom a Ouija board yeah. and it's like, oh, I guess she's been using this in her spare time. Yeah. And then a couple scenes later, she's possessed. <laughs> yeah. And it's, and it's like, but it's like when she gets possessed, it's before you start to see the real effects of the possession where it's yeah, like, right. you just see her like, you think she's sleepwalking and then she like pisses herself in the living room. Yeah. But it's like, no, it's pretty clear that this is like the early stage of the possession. But of course, no one's going to know that yeah. because in the 70s, no one knew what a possession looked like. Yeah. And I think that's probably it's part the of best why, part of why that. it was so terrifying at the time was just the exorcism concept and demon possession was probably way more foreign to the average person. Yeah. And, and this movie treats you, the viewer, the same way it treats its main characters as people who just have no idea what they're dealing with the entire time. Well, Freakin seems to come off as, like, personality-wise, as probably someone who rubs a lot of people the wrong way, almost to the point of being considered an asshole. Mm -hmm. As a director, he does not treat the audience like an idiot. It actually just treats the audience like, oh, it's you wouldn't know what this is, and that's fine, because no one else really knows what this yeah. is. Or if you kind of know the basic idea of this, they kind of do too. Like it's right. He's very respectful as a director, and it leads to a lot of great moments where it's like there's not a lot happening, but you can do a lot camera-wise and cinematography-wise. A lot. Oh, my God. The cinematography in this film is so good. Yeah. It's just... Even static shots. Like, there are shots that are just insane, like how free-moving they are <laughs> in the house or just, like, out on the street. But, like, just the, the one shot that always sticks in my head is, like, halfway through The Exorcism where it's just Karis and Marin just, like, chilling. Yeah. Like, on the just steps. sitting on the stairs, like, yeah. just battle-weary. <laughs> yeah, where it's, like, they've only been fighting for, like, ten minutes. But they've never encountered anything like that. Yes, it's fighting hard. 
and it's just so human and so well done. It conveys everything you need to know, which yeah. is, I think every shot conveys everything you yeah. need to know in that shot. And it's just great too, how there's, there's moments in the film where it's like, there's a, the, the director of Ellen Burstyn's character, who is, her last name is McNeil because it's yeah. Reagan McNeil. Right. I can't remember her name, but Ellen Burstyn's character, who is the lead in the film, and uh, yeah. honestly deserved an Oscar nomination for this film. Huh? Chris. Chris? Is her first name. All right. If she uh, mostly gets called Mrs. McNeil yeah. the whole time. But uh, Ellen Burstyn's Chris McNeil, who Burstyn absolutely kills it, and apparently was a no-name at the time she was cast. Yeah. She is just so engaging, and it's so much fun because she is a actress who is possibly, you know, talking to a director of the film she's on, uh, Crash Course. I, for some reason, remember the title of the movie <laughs> just because it was on her trailer. And there's a moment in the film where the director uh, goes to the house and apparently just dies horribly, but you don't see it. You yeah. see the remnants and the breadcrumbs, yeah. and it's so fascinating to put that together. For when you're finally told by someone the news of the horrible thing that happened, your brain just like snaps everything together <laughs> like, and you what? go, oh shit. Yeah. And it's so good. Freakin' is just so good at it. Blatty uh, with the script is also great. This is a film that honestly could have gone for three hours and I would have been fine because we would have gotten more great moments like Kinderman cinephile. <laughs> like little yeah. you know conversations film bro which Lieutenant is apparently Kinderman. a bigger part in the novel yeah i think he is a much bigger character in yeah because what's kind of weird what's kind of fascinating too, having three basically be a direct sequel to one is that one doesn't really develop and it's not a bad thing with one at all it's just an observation it's clear to me in the original novel that kinderman and karis and uh, dyer are much closer kind of friend-wise, or at least right. Karis and Kinderman. Right. But in the first film, they only have one conversation together. Yeah, they and have then, one conversation, and it kind of feels like Kinderman, like, trying to hang out with Karis yeah, more. Maybe Karis interrogate him a little like, bit about Karis what's going on. Karis is kind of like, okay, man, cool, that's fine. Yeah, and so it's like, it's, it's fun, it's interesting to see later on in 3 when they kind of push more of the book. Oh, he was my best friend. And, yeah. Yeah. But it's... it's f it's just such a good movie. Yeah. I mean, it's a film that didn't want to be a trilogy or didn't even need a sequel to begin with. It was just one book at a time. Yeah, it was just That a... was a hit and was made on $12 million and made, I think, 300 like, domestically in 73. Yeah. Or maybe 300 internationally, too, worldwide, because it's like, this was a phenomenon that had people have panic attacks quote-unquote heart attacks in the theater people threw up it was such a phenomenon yeah which is which was insane for that time because like at this point jaws hadn't come out yet which was like i think considered the first blockbuster yeah yeah but like the exorcist technically was also a, a blockbuster in its own right because yeah. people were lining up across the street and around the street and block to go to it and gosh it's just so fascinating to watch it now and even the director's cut, which I, I feel like has 10 minutes of like kind of unnecessary footage, but doesn't really hurt the film at all. Right. It just right. gives you the spider walk and more spooky demon face for no reason, but it's still <laughs> spooky demon face. Yeah. Which we'll talk about that demon's name in Exorcist 2. Right. Because it's, it's in this not film. mentioned. Yeah, in this film, the only name it's really given is Captain Howdy until it's 
pretty much push that it's probably just the devil yeah himself right because that's because that's all the entity is calling itself yeah because i think yeah what is it karis has a line about it where he's like these you know spirit beings usually refer to themselves as a demon or something they don't call themselves the devil but this one's referring to himself as the devil Mm -hmm. and ah gosh yeah it's just great i mean seriously if it's one of those movies that you've just kind of put off as like, you know, oh, it's an old movie. I don't want to watch it because it won't hold up. Just cozy up. Watch oh, it in a it dark room. Mm, it's so, creepy. It's like, put so yourself good. in the shoes of somebody in 1973, has no idea what an exorcism is, goes to this yeah. movie, <laughs> changes their life. Or just, it, it'll just catch you off guard regardless. It's It's like... To me, it's similar to Kubrick's The Shining, where it's like, just because you know a lot of the big beats does not mean you know how it works in tandem with the pacing and the editing and just the overall fact that it's not going to be a five-minute clip. It's going to be a two-hour film. Yeah. So you're getting a lot at once. It's a heavy experience. Yeah. And when Exorcist 1 comes out, it's a blast. Warner Brothers wants to make another one almost immediately because they get the biggest return, I think, on any other films. And so at the time, Blatty and Freakin get together and try to write a sequel, and nothing comes to fruition. They decide that it's like, you know, two. If they're going to do two, they're going to do two together. And then it gets to a certain point, Blatty and Freakin just don't have any idea, so they basically leave the project, and they're like, we can't do it two. So Warner Brothers brings in uh, director John Borman, who at the time is known for, you know, uh, everyone's favorite family-friendly classic, Deliverance, <laughs> and decide he's going to direct. That, yeah. And when this happens, the film, The Heretic comes out in 77. There's a four-year gap. In between those four years, pretty much everyone involved with The Exorcist just becomes iconic and or notorious in certain circles in terms of, like, the characters they play, yeah. they can't really they can't really be normal people anymore because they were in The Exorcist. Right. And so when they decide to do Exorcist 2, pretty much everyone says no except for uh, Reagan, Father Marin by, by Max von Sydow, <laughs> and the nanny of Reagan because Ellen Burstyn did not want to come back at all. So they're like, well, maybe we should have someone taking care of Reagan. Yeah. So we'll have the nanny do it. And what what comes out, what culminates together with everything and a budget that hits 14 million and you add classic actor Richard Burton as a new priest that just so happened to be Father Marin's not lover or best friend, let's say admirer. Yeah. It seems like you get The Exorcist the Heretic, which is an absolute dog shit film. It's not fun. Kind of a nothing movie. There are only a few moments in the film where I laughed hysterically, but they were very few and far between. Very far between. Very bland, dry, droning movie. And they weren't meant to be funny. Every single moment we laughed at was not meant to be funny. It's supposed to be like a big kind of tense moment or whatever. It's supposed to be spooky, but what it becomes is a weird backdoor sci-fi film that kind of has looking back at it now retroactively like weird superhero origin elements when it comes to (laughs) what they do with reagan yeah because what basically happens in the film is that it's four years or three years i think three or four years since what happened in the exorcist 
And Reagan has completely just carpamentalized, you know, pushed it to the back of her brain. Yeah, she doesn't really remember. Doesn't remember anything. And and she's now working with a psychiatrist played by Ratched from One Who Flew Over the Cuckoo's Louise Nest. Louise Fletcher, yeah. Uh, Louise Fletcher, who looks way too much like her mother. It's hilarious. And, or looks too much like Ellen Burstyn from The Exorcist, right, yeah. which is hilarious. And they they decide that they're going to do like this uh, blinking lights um, yeah, trance. They have this kind of device that like links two people up and you go into this trance with this kind of monotone sound it's two bulbs on a stick yeah basically the idea is that kind of like hypnotizes you into the same trance where you like share a brain it's like the mental link or the neural link from like pacific rim or something uh yeah they kind of do that and it's like the first 15 minutes of the movie and it's like oh we're dealing with sci-fi yeah. technology now <laughs> it's like trying to do like the get out slash inception thing of just going deep into someone's subconscious yeah and at the time that they're trying to deal with this with reagan and try to deal with her repressed memories father lamont who is Marin's like admirer basically played yeah. by richard burton she's kind is... of a random priest yeah because at this point at the end of the first exorcist both priests are dead <laughs> Marin dies of a heart attack and Karis sacrifices himself so Reagan doesn't have to deal with the devil. Yeah. Which is honestly one of the I love the ending of The Exorcist yeah. 100%. It's 11 out it's of 10. It's grim, but it's heroic. It's it's sad. It's a completely sad because at the end of The Exorcist they've won, but at what cost? And you yeah. feel the cost of the people that have been lost in the process. And then in Exorcist 2 there's just no you don't give a flying fuck what's going on. Like, as soon as they established the whole blinky lights thing, Andy and I both looked at each other being like, is this, is this, this is, what this is? This is a sci-fi movie. Yeah, because Richard Burton's Lamont, his whole thing is like, for some reason the church doesn't believe that Reagan's possession was actually a possession. There's this weird thing where they think that something happened to Marin that we didn't see. Yeah. And so what happens is they send Lamont to ask Reagan questions, and Reagan's like, I don't remember anything. It's all repressed. And so they go, let's do the blinky lights thing, and maybe Father Lamont, you can go into Reagan's brain with her. And then comes a two-hour film where they just slowly piece together what we already know. It's a demon that killed Marin, and apparently not only is it a demon, its name is Pazuzu, it has lived through people for at least Thousands, yeah. a century, yeah. maybe. It, it came through locusts in Africa. <laughs> yeah, well, I he think was, he's like some ancient demon lord of the wind. Yeah. And so I guess the way that they and the only embody one who... that is by making him like an army of locusts yeah. or something that attacks some African tribe. Mm-hmm. And the only person who knows how to kind of combat it. Is James Earl Jones, who Burton, who Lamont just assumes is like the stereotypical African tribal leader, but when he yeah. meets him, he's like the chillest doctor who yeah, just he's wears a, scientist, a, he's just yeah. a scientist who deals with locusts. And they Which just, was probably one of the only like kind of cool subversions in the movie where I was like, oh. All oh right. yeah, this is something that I did not expect that, and I like this better. <laughs> yeah, I feel like if we kept going the way we were going, it was going to be gross. Yeah, 
which don't worry, there are other aspects that oh, were gross. Plenty of gross. Um, but just at the by the by the end of the film, it's you pretty much already know what's going. Yeah, to there's happen. not really a lot of new information revealed to us, and it's certainly yeah. not anything that makes the original events scarier. Or you even know, there's yeah. there's no like, oh, it was that. That's so much worse. No, it's just like it's just Father Lamont trying to figure out in the most roundabout way what happened to Reagan yeah. when we already know what happened to Reagan. In both this and, a, I mean, a more modern example of Sinister shows that when you give something that really shouldn't have a name a name, there's a very good chance that it's going to backfire and make the thing just look silly. Yeah. Pazuzu. Pazuzu. Yeah, Pazuzu is silly. <laughs> like what's scary well, in the first the amount exorcist of times, once his name is revealed the amount of times they say it is yes. just it's like every they say it other so seriously Pazuzu. Pazuzu. Yeah. and what's so great about the exorcist is that you don't care if it's the devil or not the demon or entity that's in reagan is just so confident in itself yeah. that it's just scary on its own yeah, it's just it could be called Brad like, for all I care yeah, it's, it's just, still I think part of it also is the fact that you don't know yeah. What it is. You don't know if it's the devil or what else it could be or if Reagan's severely mentally ill or something. And then, you know, you're just kind of waiting for answers to be revealed. And they don't give you answers. They just give you more reasons to be terrified. Yeah. And in this, it's just all about answers. And yeah. none of the answers are interesting because they don't deepen the story that was told in the first film and you, at all you already know watching it that these weren't the answers that freakin and blatty had in mind right. for the original Cause, yeah because they're just made up when you look back after watching the heretic when you look back at the first film it's like why would any of this be the case it's completely superfluous to the story being told in the exorcist yeah, it, it would be it'd be one thing if they revealed a bunch of answers that somehow made the first film make more sense or made it that yeah. much more worrisome but it didn't need that is a no. perfectly conceived film as it is so yeah. you're kind of fighting a losing battle by trying to make a story that's all about answering the questions of the first film that didn't need it didn't have any questions yeah it didn't need answered yeah freaking and blatty did such a great job with that first film of being like we know exactly what you need and what you need to hear overall, yeah. where it's like, it, I do not care how Pazuzu got from Africa to Georgetown. Yeah, I do not care. And even then, it doesn't really explain that. It just says like, oh, it was in Africa for a while, and then it left, and then it just showed up in Georgetown. So even the answers are just not even. No, yeah, they're just not even great. And and then it just gets like really weird because Reagan. Linda Blair in the film, which we didn't talk about much in the first film. Linda Blair is phenomenal in The Exorcist. Yeah, as a child. As a child actress, she absolutely kills it, and you and you want to protect her, but you also want to punch her when she's possessed <laughs> because she is scary. Yeah. Even though it's pretty clear it's not her voice about halfway through the film because it's dubbed over by some other voices and whatnot, she still... Her her facial acting is great. Yeah, oh yeah, and she kills it in all the scenes as if she she doesn't it doesn't matter what they're gonna do with her voice. She's just playing it hard. Right. But after that film, it's pretty clear that she never <laughs> wanted to do that again. 
yeah. in terms of like the makeup, in terms of the exhaustion, like the 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 amount of stress that she probably was dealing with as yeah. everyone else was trying to make that film. Well, yeah, the first film had kind of a tumultuous production. I mean, yeah, the... it, it feels scrappy, which is funny because yeah. it's a, it's a studio film, but the way that it's shot, it feels very scrappy. Yeah. Well, and I mean, El- Ellen Burstyn was injured. Um, yeah, she hurt her cockix apparently. Yeah. Um, and uh, you know, they're just just a lot of not abusive things, but just kind of extreme no. conditions to work in. I mean, like Friedkin making the Reagan's bedroom. Uh, they built that set, Reagan's bedroom, in like a refrigerator, like a meat locker, basically, yes. so that they could get the cold effect and everybody would be chilled and there you can mm-hmm. see their breath because um, they couldn't do couldn't do social network CGI breath back in 1973. No. So and thank God they real. couldn't because it would have looked, <laughs> looked bad. Yeah. Um, but like after but, that, she was like, I never want to work. She, she, I think she said she still hates the cold today. Yeah. Like it just like. Because of it's, that movie. Because it's like that. I mean, again, Freakin was known for before The Exorcist doing car chase scenes possibly without permits. <laughs> so it's like Freakin is truly scrappy, but he also could be considered dangerous. Yeah. Especially, I mean, now looking back in that era, he was probably just like, ah, he's he's a go getter. He's got yeah. moxie. He's a loose he's cannon. He's a loose cannon, yeah, but we Billy love him anyway. Friedkin. And so in this one, and with Heretic, it's like Blair is obviously here. For a different reason, she she joined the project because she thought the script was good. Yeah. But it got so many rewrites by the time they shot. It was nothing, the like the film that she signed on to. So she basically was like, "Okay, I'm gonna get a paycheck. I am never going to wear the Exorcist makeup again, yeah. and I'm just gonna do my own thing." And what transpires is just Reagan kind of just doing nothing, but like sleepwalking tap yeah. dancing or just like fake smiling because yeah. she's cause she's like pretending everything's a character, okay she gets really nothing to do there's kind yes. of the mystery of oh she's still possessed even though we thought that that uh Karis exercised the demon in the first film he didn't yeah. she's still possessed yeah apparently even though the that's demon... her character arc even though that that's there's no autonomy on her part or agency no. it's just we're waiting to see what happens to her. No, nothing describes the film better than there's a scene where Richard Burton is walking around Africa and like I think a, a mob just starts throwing rocks at him. I don't remember why, but they were very unhappy with what he did. And then there's a hard cut from him getting rocks thrown at him <laughs> to Reagan tap dancing in a performance. Yeah, It's so jarring and has very little to do with what's happening with Burton that it's like, oh, that's right. These characters are just either stalling or just having to hold the whole film on their shoulders. <laughs> yeah. And it just doesn't feel, even when they start working together, it just doesn't feel right. Yeah. And it yeah. also doesn't feel right that Linda Blair, at the time, I don't think she was 18. I think she was 17. Maybe 17, 18, but like... Uh, I think she was 18 or 19. Okay, good. Because the film sexualizes Reagan a lot. Yeah. And it's really weird, because it's only a four-year gap. Yeah, so she's, it's kind like, of, she's kind of treated like this little girl in yeah. the first film. Yeah, she's, um, like, she's like 12 or 13 you, in the 11th. you worry about her, you fear for her, you root for her uh, as this kind of cute little girl who's taken over by this horrible presence and then 
one of her first scenes in not her first scene, but one of the first scenes in this, she's like wearing kind of a skin tied outfit and bobbing around and very low shot, cut dresses. Yeah. Shot in a very sexual way. And it's like, okay. I mean, you know, I don't know when it was that Linda Blair did her. She, she went kind of, she kind of went for it the way a lot of child stars did or do and kind of, you know, tried to go a little more, more adult, adult and, yeah. you know, did like a, what was it? A, hustler or playboy playboy or something, or something. and like yeah that's which, perfectly fine she can do whatever she wants yeah she did whatever she wanted at <laughs> like, that time yeah but like it's weird to go from one movie to the next movie and this same character is suddenly viewed in this very sexual light yeah uh especially when it has nothing to do with the story <laughs> and the character it, I mean, still gets no agency it's like the equivalent of like uh, like, if season four of Stranger Things, uh, Millie Bobby Brown's Eleven starts wearing, like, very revealing, like, skin-tight outfits yeah, or whatever. Like... A- again, if, if that's what they're going for, okay, she's her own person. Hopefully she can say no to those things. Right. But it just feels very jarring compared to where we started yeah, well, barely, give like, some, five years ago. You know, if you're going to do that, use that as some sort of device for that character to have agency or to yeah. develop some sort of new character trait instead of being she's somehow a more central character in this like a more fully realized character in this but also less interesting and less um uh, self-actualized yeah because most of the first film is just her in bed yeah she's she's kind of the subject or the the object of the mm-hmm. film she's the goal F- save her. yeah yeah she's, she, the goal. she's not just... the character going through the arc she is the problem yeah um or the the person to be saved mm-hmm. and in this she's a main character but she's given nothing to do except be like weirdly sensual with father lamont well, not even like it's yeah, it's it's yeah, it's it's like it's the not. The movie kind of tries to fabricate this weird relationship, sexual tension, and it's not like they flirt with each other, but it's like yeah, the film is like prying into Lamont's consciousness and trying to kind of frame her as sexual, a sexual object. Because yeah, initially, it's like the idea of like and Lamont's in... not exactly fighting it. <laughs> Yeah, and in, in the first film, it's pretty much implied that Reagan has a father, but he's pretty much a deadbeat, and it's like a, it's a rare, it's a weird situation with her mother. Yeah. And then in Exorcist Two, it initially seems like they're trying to push Lamont as like a father figure. Yeah. In terms of taking, making sure Reagan's safe, making sure Reagan's okay, working with Reagan to find out the cause of the possession as well as could it happen again. But by the end of the film, there is a scene which both Andy and I will never forget <laughs> because we both went ew gross i hate it out loud there's a scene where lamont who's kind of possessed by pazuzu at this point yeah he's like kind of in a weird yeah trance sees a sexualized version of reagan like by pazuzu basically trying to trick him into melding with pazuzu and it leads to a scene where lamont who is like richard burton's like 50 55 at this point yeah uh, starts like he like, looks, like grabs her and kind like, of ra- 
like pretend makes out with her like is yeah it is i don't know it's gross throws her against a wall and like that's later when like he like when pazuzu's just like now kill the fake reagan (laughs) and then he takes the real reagan and just starts throwing her around yeah it's it's a very quick kind of transition from inappropriately sexual to like suddenly very violent and And it's like "Ah, i hate this either way yeah and then, and then, like this, all takes place in the house from the first Exorcist. So you, co- of course, <laughs> and yet or, the house looks nothing. Yeah, like it, yeah, it's supposedly supposed to be the first house, but obviously, no one had any reference, like photo references, or even like any of the old set because it just it looks like a fake version of the set. Yeah, it and it actually looks more. It actually looks like a set compared to the first Exorcist, it just where it looked, looked like, like a, a house. house. Yeah, and it's just funny. By the end of Exorcist 2, The Heretic, it's this weird vibe of like, well, before we talk about the ending, we have to also talk about the fact that Reagan's biggest reveal is that she has, like, telepathy, or, like, has, like... uh, She can, like, somehow communicate with... Yeah. I I don't really know what it is, It's 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 shown in the film as her... (laughs) Being able to help a non-verbal child on the spectrum speak. Yeah. And it's so weird. I don't yeah. know how to describe it other than you. Yeah, it's like, why, it's is, really this, why is this demon-possessed girl now has the given ability... the ability to kind of uh, break down the walls of, you know... Mm-hmm. Uh, learning disabled or you know people with neuroatypical people neurodivergent people like why what are what are we suggesting about neurodivergence what's what's kind of weird though too is like i just like early on the film the the psychiatrist's office or like yeah like the therapist's office that she goes to is uh it it looks like nothing it looks like a it looks like a set in a way that I've never seen a set look where it's like, yeah. it is like a bunch of hexagons pushed together, like hexagonal rooms pushed together Made where every wall is a mirror or glass. glass yeah. And, it, and I thought at a certain point, like it was a like a Star Trek set or something yeah, like it, from the original series. It looks like it's supposed to be like a house of mirrors that just doesn't have mirrors anymore. <laughs> and at a certain point I was like, are they implying that this is like, like a, like a, like an office or like a clinic for like, children on the spectrum oh that is like fully the idea because like yeah because at that you point you see kids with down syndrome in yes. there and you see kids people playing... with different sorts of kind of you know uh, different divergences and that sort of thing yeah and it then it's clear in that scene in the scene where she helps a nonverbal child speak and then it becomes even worse when the mother just starts shaking that kid violently because She's like, like, no, she's like, no, she was normal for a second. And we were like, "Mm, I don't like that at all. Come on, Reagan, use your demon powers to cure all these autistic people. It was, oh gosh. We both, we both knew what was going to happen, but we still were not prepared for it to do exactly that. (laughs) The the heretic is so gross. And it's not even like the film has gotten a cult classic status for being as bad as it is to the point where I think most people, if there are people who genuinely love this movie, okay. I, I, nah, I'm glad, I don't get it. Sure, I don't get it either. Not at all. But, like, I would rather someone watch this and not have the experience that we had where, like, we both were in our heads going, like, 
Okay, Exorcist three is after this. We just got to finish this. And then <laughs> yeah. We we'll get to Exorcist three, and then we just we just, we'll watch this and never have to watch it again. I'll try to burn all my heretic after the podcast episode. <laughs> like that was where we were. But there are some people. It seems like over the years where it's like, oh, it's a so bad, it's good film. It's so funny. It's so so like weird. It's such a good fun time. I ironically, and it's like. Even in that light, I could it's not so watch boring. it again. It just, yeah, it's so boring. Yeah. How could a film where it's like they have Richard Burton has to go to a temple that the only way you can get to that temple <laughs> is if you Emperor's New Groove your way up a slope. Yeah, like crab walk between two rocks up 200 feet. Yeah, that apparently people die in all the time. <laughs> Which is probably one of the funniest sequences in the movie is yeah, that person so falling fake. to their death. At like two miles an hour. Yeah. Free falling at like two miles an hour. And like Max von Sydow only is in the film for flashbacks because when Lamont and Reagan do like their blinky light trance like in the same dream thing, every now and again they'll see like Father, they're like, they get connected to Father Marin's like past for no reason. Yeah. And it's like, and every time I watch it, it's like, oh, Max von Sydow was looking really good in his 40s. Like, that's all I'm thinking about when I'm watching these scenes. I do not care what's happening. Right. And by the end of the film, the house from the original Exorcist has been destroyed completely. <laughs> the nanny lit herself on fire because, of course, she did. No yeah. reason. I don't know the reason, honestly, still. Yeah. I've thought about it for a few days, and I still don't have an answer. <laughs> and the main psychiatrist's arc was, I don't believe Reagan was special to... I now understand that Reagan is like the most special person I've ever met. And that's her arc. Yeah. And it's like, God, I hate this movie. <laughs> and when this movie came out, I think I got a decent amount of money back. And it was, you know, not everyone hated it, but most critics did. Yeah, it was not liked. Yeah, there's there's a there's a story that apparently Freakin said that he heard they showed a screen of the film and all the executives were run out by the audience <laughs> because they could not believe that they were trying to peddle that piece of shit as an Exorcist film. <laughs> and so when Exorcist 2 comes out, it makes, I assume, like double its budget, but nowhere near as much as the first Exorcist. Right. So they, they just kibosh any other sequel. However, hilariously enough, in the late 70s, early 80s, Blatty comes up with an idea for a sequel that comes out of nowhere, asks Freakin if he wants to develop it for a possible Exorcist 3 that's just going to pretend like Heretic doesn't exist. <laughs> they decide to build the film until Freakin drops out, and Blatty decides, well, what if I just turn this into a novel? And then it becomes Legion, which gets published in 1983, becomes a bestseller. And then once it gets published, Warner Brothers goes, hey, another Exorcist. <laughs> we could do this. Yeah. And so here comes The Exorcist 3, an exorcist film that was originally not supposed to have an exorcism. The film yeah. is about, is a continuation of the first film, completely doesn't follow the heretic because why would anything with a brain do so? Right. And it takes place 15 years after the first exorcist, and the main character is the detective from the first film, who... Hilariously enough, was played by Lee Cobb, most notably known as Juror Number Three in Twelve Angry Men. Yeah, right. And uh, who unfortunately passed away in the late seventies. But instead, they got George C. Scott to play the role. And guess which juror he plays in the Twelve Angry Men <laughs> remake in the nineties? He plays Juror Number yep. Three. 
Perfect. So it's in the film. It's basically following Detective Kinderman as he's trying to find the Gemini killer who is now starting to kill people again in Georgetown. But the twist is, is the Gemini killer died 15 years ago. Yeah, the same year so, as uh, Reagan's yes. possession and exorcism. Yes. So it's like, uh, is it a ghost? Did he fake his death? What yeah. happened? Don't worry. It's an exorcist film. You can kind of grasp what they're trying to do. <laughs> but what's great about it is Exorcist 3 is just really fucking good. Like, I think it's great. Yeah. Personally, it's, it's, I just... It's kind of shocking how good of a handle Blatty seems to have yeah. on film. I mean, he's an author. That's, that's the most surprising part is this is like probably the only time an author goes, I think I could direct this film. <laughs> it works out. Yeah. Well, yeah. do you know who the original director was supposed to be? Uh, no. John Carpenter. Oh, wow. He apparently developed the film initially with Carpenter with him as a director, and then Carpenter just outright said, it's pretty clear that you want to direct it, <laughs> so you can direct it. Yeah. And then Blatty does, and Blatty kills it. Yeah. Like, it definitely is not as showy in places as, like, Freakin did with The Exorcist, but yeah. man, they it, have moments. Yeah, there's I mean, moments in here. It's uh, it's mostly played. I mean, it's hard to say it's darker than The Exorcist, the first film, but it's it's kind of more, um, just uh, understated and kind of emotionally, um, melancholy. Yeah, uh, we're we're following Kinderman, who in this version is kind of. Uh, it's kind of established that Father Karras, who died in the first one, was like his best friend. Yeah, they, yeah, they became they best friends, close, basically. Um, which we kind of mentioned earlier. Um, and it's sort of like 15 years on, and he's never really you know, let go of what happened to mm-hmm. Karras. He still grieves every year on the anniversary. Um, and he's kind of, he's an old graying uh, detective kind of at, on on the precipice of his career yeah and this new threat comes up it it's kind of uh it also ends up kind of reminding me of like this like silence of the lambs situation oh, where yeah. it's like because he he ends up going to this psych ward and yes finding this this patient who claims to be the gemini killer even though mm-hmm. the gemini killer was dead and he's kind of he has to. If there's a lot of scenes of him interrogating this mysterious uh, patient zero, mm-hmm. um, asking him about the Gemini killer, and there are all sorts of revelations. And of course, he's taking credit for everything, and that it's actually yeah. him, and that mm-hmm. he's possessing people, and and uh, all the while, when he's interrogating this patient or this uh, yeah this patient prisoner. Um, the actor actually changes back and forth between uh, mm-hmm. uh, what's his uh, Brad Dorif. Yeah, Brad Dorif, who, who is most would... notably known as the voice of Chucky in the Child's Play films. Yeah, and he's also uh, he's in Lord of the Rings. He's well, what's his name? Worm Tongue. I think it's Worm Tail. I thought Worm Worm Tail is I, Harry I, Potter, I, isn't I'm, it? I I'm sorry for think... everyone who loves. I love Lord of the Rings too, but the names escape me I think every it's worm time. Tongue. He's like Saruman's little yeah. lackey, dude. He's um, he's very pale and wears all black. Yeah, he's in and, two uh, towers and Return of the King. He, he plays the supposed Gemini killer in this, but like 
in certain scenes, they replace him with Jason Miller, who yes. played Father Karras in the first film, which is mm-hmm. kind of a confusing choice, but also really effective because it keeps yes. you on your toes. And it's like, how much of this is Kinderman seeing this? How much of it is, you know, a demon spirit showing himself this way mm-hmm. to to Kinderman? So it, yeah. it is kind of, it's a lot more... Uh, psychological i think yes even than the first film yeah, the biggest thing about the exorcist 3 which is the biggest detriment of the film but it doesn't kill the film is that at a certain point one of the brothers figured out for some reason they didn't know this at the beginning but that legion is a is a book about the detective who does not do exorcisms there is no exorcism in the film and in the book and also it was implied that in the in the initial cut Brad Dorff was going to play both the Gemini Carroller and do a version of Karis. Yeah. Because in the original, because the whole thing about the story is that there's an amnesiac patient in the psych ward who says he's the Gemini killer, and he can basically describe in detail every single kill the Gemini killer has made, including the ones that Kinderman is starting to find. Yeah, there's these... kill, there's killings happening as yeah. they're speaking but what they find out well kinderman finds out and one i think one of the best reactions george c scott has in the entire film is that the amnesiac looks and sounds exactly like Karis. however it's the gemini killer and the yeah. way that they show it is like andy said every now and again it shows when the gemini killer has prominence over the body yeah because it's a big thing too is like the, the book is called legion because it's a legion of souls that live in karis's dead body that is just being brought back to life <laughs> yeah. and in the initial cut of the film brad dorf was supposed to be both roles but warner brothers said no you have to have an actor from the exorcist show up yeah and so they're like why don't we just do jason miller as Karis again. Because Karis doesn't show up in Exorcist 2. Thank God for him. Yeah. And in all honesty, I honestly think that choice was for the better because I kind of yeah. love what they do with I that. actually like that choice. And it, yeah. it met some criticism at the time, and I will give it mm-hmm. that it is kind of confusing. because Initially, don't, yes. They don't necessarily outright mm-hmm. answer one way or the other when or, you know, who this is. Um, yeah. I mean, they do, but it still seems kind of... Uh, but what's fishy. fascinating though is Blatty almost seemed like he knew that was going to be the case because there is the initial scene where they introduce that idea it's pretty much implied that the first time it goes from Jason Miller to Dorf George C. Scott doesn't react meaning that George C. Scott still sees Miller even though the Gemini Killer is taking personality prominence Yeah, it's not until later when Brad Dorff basically jumps at George C. Scott, that you see in Scott's face a fear of, like, holy shit, I've seen something else that I didn't yeah. see initially, which is, like, it seems like it has a tie of belief, which is a perfect thematic element to the film because Kinderman has no belief anymore. Yeah. Like, what's so fascinating about it is that in the original Exorcist film, there's another priest named Father Dyer that we didn't talk about, which we initially, we called him Gay Priest because we thought the film was doing like the 70s over flamboyance <laughs> yeah, of a character. Yeah. But then later I was like, Let's, uh, I like Piano Priest better. We <laughs> called him both Gay Priest and Piano Priest. His name is Father Dyer. And he 
is not really a prominent role in The Exorcist 1, but, like, he does have moments where he has good character building with Karis, and then at the very end when Karis kills himself to save Reagan, Dyer is just completely broken. Yeah. And it's like, he's gr- he's glad that Reagan survived, but he misses his best friend, similar to Kinderman. So in Exorcist 3, we have, honestly, one of the best friendships I think I've seen in a film in a while. Yeah. Which is Kinderman just two and old Dyer. Men. Yeah, yeah, who are both just broken and honestly have kind of become Karis hilariously was in the in the first exorcist. Yeah, yeah. Where they're both disillusioned by their jobs, yeah. by their faiths, with Dyer being a bit more optimistic than Kinderman. Yeah. But, but it's overall, kind of sweet. They kind of Yeah, they complement each other well. Grieve together yes. and and kind of support each other in the absence of what was initially who was initially you know yeah. their closest friend and it's it's a great and the way that bloody again introduces their relationship is phenomenal because it's dyer basically going i have an appointment today you know kinderman always gets sad around the anniversary of karis's death i need to cheer him up cut to kinderman kinderman says i'm gonna go see a film with fire dyer today dyer always gets kind of sad during the anniversary yeah. of karis's death i need to cheer him up like they're just using each other as an excuse to kind of you know have it have a good moment of just like just like relief yeah and they just go see it's a wonderful life which they both admit they've seen at least 30 times (laughs) yeah and it's a great relationship that literally comes out of nowhere yeah but in a good way it's because it feels very authentic yeah their dialogue is so snappy and they're just so (laughs) mean to each other in a funny way the lemon drops talk from father dyer comes out of nowhere and it's great the salmon talk, which we're not going to talk about anymore because I just want people to experience that scene by itself because George C. Scott kills it comedically and uh-huh. performance-wise when it comes to the story about a, a carp or salmon in his bathtub. Yeah. Yeah. And for the first 30 minutes of the film, it's just like, I'm curious to see how, it, like what, what fully ties everything in together. And then you see it, you know exactly what ties Kinderman tightly into the Gemini killer's death and, like, the murders and whatnot. And genuinely, I was sad. Like, even though it's kind of abrupt what happens in terms of, like, oh, I didn't expect this to happen, especially this early. Yeah. But even then, it's, like, it still works so well because it's, like, now Kinderman has... He's got that thrust. He's got yeah, that right, purpose. Right. And then Kinderman becomes just a great performance from George C. Scott. Like a man who is literally has more good performances in most people's filmography. Yeah, right. Like he's got great performances left and right. And it's also like one of his last roles, I think, before he passes away. Because I think he passes away. I think he passed away like nine years later. Yeah, eight he, or nine by, years probably later. by the end of the decade. Yeah. So it's probably one of his last great roles. Yeah. And and even though it's like very clear that it's like it take again, it takes a little bit to be like, oh, this isn't Lee Cobb. This is the same detective, but it's a completely different actor. Oh, this is a priest who's a completely different actor, but it's the same character. You still just like really it still invokes the personality and the trauma and the grief yeah. from that first film over to the third one extremely well. And really the only issues that the film has, in my opinion, is the finale, which I still enjoy. 
I still enjoyed yeah. the finale. It's just it feels a little bit rushed, rushed, and not contradictory, but just kind of feels like it's on a slightly different page than the rest of the movie because the rest of the yeah. movie is this kind of methodical, mournful, self-reflective, self-reflective, grief-stricken mystery mm-hmm. um, that this detective is kind of trying to figure out while also managing his own. Yeah. You know, uh, sadness and disillusionment. And then the finale is this kind of grandiose, over the top war with a demon scene. Yeah. Which, like, a, a big part of the original Exorcist is the idea of can someone who is losing their faith get it, get it back? Can someone who is openly saying that they do not believe in God, are, is, are, are they able to gain that religion and gain that belief yeah. because of something that has happened supernatural and would that like how would that affect somebody in those moments because um chris mcneil in the first film is not she doesn't outright say she's an atheist but it's pretty clear that she's just not very religious overall right so when her daughter gets possessed by an entity a demon she literally does everything scientifically that she can and until she realizes well the only thing i have left besides putting her in a padded cell is a priest in an exorcism. Yeah. Well, as with this, it's like, can a disillusioned man who doesn't believe in God reignite his faith enough to go up against an entity he can't handle by himself? <laughs> <laughs> and it's clear that it still fits that vibe with the new finale. However, it's also clear that, yeah, this wasn't what the film was supposed to build up to. Because one of the things that the studio asked for besides adding somebody from the exorcist, they also wanted an exorcism <laughs> because they didn't want to call it Legion because they wanted to make a lot of money or at least in their minds, they're not going to make a lot of money unless the exorcist is planted somewhere on the screen. Right. So they go, it's false advertising. If we call it exorcist three and there's no exorcism, <laughs> despite the fact that it is a continuation and sequel to the original exorcist. Yeah. So we should probably put an exorcist in there. And Exorcism. so what otherwise was going to be a pretty poignant, straightforward finale, which was basically a, a duel, not, I mean, like, a, I think a duel of, like, philosophies yeah, and kind of, a duel of, of the wit, minds. of the minds between the Gemini killer and Kinderman, what transpires instead is a finale where a priest that's been kind of sprinkled throughout due to reshoots is brought in to try and fight the Gemini killer. Yeah. And then we get the bombastic finale that, honestly, even though it's Blatty is forced to do it and it's clear that he doesn't want to do it, the man does the exorcism really well. Like, I think his his quote was like, I was basically strong-armed to do it, but hey, I can turn, I think he's like, I can turn a pig's ear into a purse. I can do this. Yeah. If you want an exorcism, I'll give it to you. <laughs> and what he does is he gives an exorcist that has some pretty haunting imagery, some wild choices. Yeah. And overall, it still ends to a degree how we want it to end. There's just like a roller coaster right before the ending now. (laughs) Yeah. And it's, I mean, it's a great movie. I mean, unfortunately it's not as good as it could be, which I know that shout factory, thankfully their director's cut, while it's not all in pristine condition, they did kind of piece back together Blatty's yeah, it's kind initial of vision together from like 
daily like daily tapes yeah. and everything. Because yeah. what I didn't know is that every single scene in the cell is reshot. Oh, yeah. Because like originally it was like a brick wall and it was all Dorif, but since every scene after, well, every scene in the film has Miller and Dorif, it's pretty clear that they're all reshot. Yeah. So it's like now you see in the the director's cut on the on the like the the collector's edition DVD you see like a a standard brick wall, <laughs> Brad Dorf in his fullest, yeah. uh, which Brad Dorf he kills it, absolutely he just like sh- he just sh- which is funny too because apparently that's also a different performance. Oh wow! Like he he knew like they're they're we're doing the reshoots because they want something much more much bigger. And much more straightforward. I'll give it to them. Yeah. And so instead of something that's more nuanced, and probably he probably put a lot of effort into trying to find the intricacies of the difference between Karis physically, like how he would look differently yeah, right. than the Gemini Killer. This time around, he knows he has to be only the Gemini Killer, so he just goes all in, and I love it. Yeah. And the Exorcist Three just slaps. It's pretty great. I, I yeah. can't wait to watch it again. I It's a very different movie from yeah. the first film, but I unlike The Heretic, it's a rewarding yeah. it's rewarding in the in the ways that it diverges and tries to tell a different kind of story. Yeah, it makes you really believe that like if for some reason Blatty wanted to do another one, if there was enough time in between, I would trust him after three. Yeah. If he was still alive. Unfortunately he passed away I think in twenty seventeen. But Blatty shows it. Dash exorc- my hopes, Logan. <laughs> Sorry, apologize. But no, Blatty shows that both direction and writing-wise, he if he has an exorcist story that he was confident in telling, he could tell it well. Yeah. And so it's hard not to be kind of appreciative that like this this trilogy that wasn't supposed to exist initially led to a finale that feels you know very reflective sad but also has some closure that it definitely you definitely need in a film like this because like while the ending is sad and abrupt there's also some closure with karis in a way that's like really good and it's hard not to be kind of like thankful that if they did that they did karis and they brought miller back and miller was able to kind of help with that yeah because he kind of does have a moment that's similar to the finale of the exorcist it's not as good but I really liked it because I think Miller put his heart and soul into the very small parts that he had. Right, right. And so, yeah, that's the Exorcist trilogy. Watch it, not Heretic. Do yeah, the other really two. Yeah, really skip skip Heretic. Yeah. Uh, watch watch the Exorcist. Uh, look at a blank wall for two hours, <laughs> and then watch the Exorcist three, because that's basically the, the experience. <laughs> that's the experience you're gonna get is with Heretic. So, so now you're thinking. We've gotten all the Exorcist films out of the way. There's no way that we're not going to do a trilogy next week. Well, here's the thing. Is that there's technically five Exorcist films. (laughs) However, two of those films are about the exact same idea. Andy, what exactly am I talking about? (laughs) (laughs) Yes, so 1990 did not, in fact, mark the end of Exorcist films. In the early 2000s, uh, somebody decided it would be a good idea to tell a prequel story to The Exorcist. And uh, that ended up becoming two different films of two different visions, kind of a battle between artist and studio and all of that. And what we ended up with was 
two different versions of this same prequel story to The Exorcist, one titled Exorcist the Beginning in 2004, and a year later, Dominion, prequel to The Exorcist. Yeah, the first one, the beginning is basically what the studio wanted it to be, and it flopped. Yes. And so they went, wait, never mind. What if we give money to the original director, Paul Schrader, because Rennie Harlan was the director of the uh, basically yeah. the reshot theatrical cut. Paul Schrader had completed a vision for yes. an Exorcist prequel yeah. titled Dominion. And he was almost done until yeah. they basically kicked him off and they reshot it and made it more of like a, I think a bombastic thrill ride is what they were trying yeah. to do. And then that flopped. And so they were like, okay, you know what, Paul? You can have a, your movie. Yeah. Go make your movie. And, and so, so he finishes his movie and a year later they release his version yeah so there's two i am to my understanding radically different versions of this exorcist prequel they are two different versions of a prequel surrounding father marin before we see him in the exorcist and i believe around the time the exorcist 2's flashbacks are supposed to take place i don't i hope to god they do not reference the heretic But it what is if they use the the neural link technology. Yeah, if you ever if you ever wondered, geez, I hope they make a Father Marin prequel. Why didn't they do it? <laughs> good news for you, they made two. Now are they good? We're gonna see. So tune in on October sixteenth when we do our Exorcist prequel double feature prequel. <laughs> and then on the thirtieth, right before the Halloween, we have another trilogy for you and it's going to be a blast we're both super excited about it yes and we will not tell you exactly what we're doing but we will say it is from the mind of john carpenter so until then tune in on the 16th when we do our exorcist double feature frequel i'm logan sowash and i'm andy carr thank you so much for listening bye